The information expressed in the following podcast is intended for educational purposes only and was created by and belongs solely to Believe Limited and the Flow podcast and does not necessarily reflect the views of our sponsors. Please speak to your healthcare provider before making any medical decisions. Hi, I'm Jessica and welcome to Flow. I'm here with Sarah Watson, sex therapist, and we want to know, how's your flow? Welcome once again to Flow. Today's a very special day. It's like a very special episode of Blossom, but for Flow, straight talk about extreme periods. Why so special, you ask? Because, well, I I think it's special that we're going to get a little sociological in here. We're going to be talking about religion and menstruation, or rather how different religions address periods, or dare we say how they might not address them, let alone address extreme periods. The silence on periods in religious practice, Sarah, what do we think? Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about this today. Growing up in a very religious household and going to Catholic school, I think we have lots to talk about. <sighs> so yeah. before we fully get into it, we got to uphold certain traditions that we like here on Flow. Sarah, how's yours? I'm in my luteal stage right now, so I'm feeling energized and not so uh, emotional right now, which is lovely. How is yours? Oh, I am menstruating. I am menstruating. Oh. I am menstruating. Mm-hmm. I'm menstruating more than I've ever. No, it's fine. It's great. It's just I was up at five a.m. menstruating. Ever happened to you? You're just like I'm awake now because this is happening to my body. Yes, I have. Way back before my IUD days. Yes, and that's not mm. the best to wake up to that. But part of life. And also right? it was more productive to be awake than to be asleep, quite frankly. I know my body was more happy to work through it and some slight movement than to just be sure. still. Yeah. But, absolutely. you know, that was something I had to learn by experience, learn by doing, learn by practice. That was not mm-hmm. something I was taught from a religion. Now, I was also not really taught in an indoctrinated dogma. Mm-hmm. However... I am fascinated by all the practices and rituals that exist. So we're going to get into talking about how religions look at menstruation right after this quick break. This ad is brought to you by Von Vendi, Von Willebrand Factor Recombinant. My name is Nicole, and my deciding factor is making my voice heard. To hear the backstory, drop by Von Vendi, that's V-O-N-V-E-N-D-I, dot com slash patient dash stories. Welcome back. Welcome once again to Flow. Here we go. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of ways individuals can learn about periods, right? Absolutely. In sex ed, mm-hmm. whether or not there's a lot of information there. It could be sex ed. It could be from peers or mentors. It could be from mm-hmm. caregivers, parents, or from a religion, a religious organization or a practice. Mm-hmm. Sarah, do you have any experience with that? I sure do. Let's back up to what you first said, right? Like sex ed in schools. Traditionally, mm-hmm. here in the States, right? I can only speak to to that is fifth grade puberty talk. We get the puberty talk. So that's generally when you're going to hear as as a young one about periods and changes in your body through public education and or private school. I think it definitely is fifth grade for most kids here in the States. And then ninth grade, you get more of a traditional sex education. So fifth grade, I have no recollection of having this class. Not one little tiny bit. 
Mm. What I have, yeah, which is interesting. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it happened for me in the traditional sense, because I have no memory of it. There were more important things at the time for your fifth grade brain to be focusing yeah. on. It just yeah. what didn't stick, that moment of education. To be fair, I was in a very traditional Christian private school. So I am not sure if that was in the syllabus and like what really needed to be mm. taught in fifth grade. And then also in conjunction to our bleeding disorders community, my fifth grade experience happened to be when we were going through a lot as a family and losing a family member that year. So because of him contracting HIV due to the blood products for hemophilia. So so that may have something to do with my memory. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so I'm sure some others that in the bleeding disorder community can relate to that. But really, no memory of that um, fifth grade puberty class. And then I jumped over to Catholic school for ninth grade hmm. and had sex ed by the health teacher, which is very, very traditional. It seems to be the role of the health the teacher and the gym teacher combined. They tend to teach the same thing, which just in my brain doesn't add up. Um, and that's where I learned a little bit more, but kind of reflecting on Christianity and being someone who has a bleeding disorder, I was taught nothing, right? Mm. I wasn't taught anything. And I think we've talked about in previous episodes, trying to figure out how to use a tampon, trying to figure out my body and what that looks like and not knowing how this is going to look for me moving forward, especially as a young woman. And learning a lot of things from peers. And my distinct memory is being in seventh grade at the, at the Christian school and going to the bathroom. And remember hearing the tamp, for those who are not going into uh, ladies' restrooms, there's boxes that we can put our sanitary objects, as they're called, to throw them away. Trash receptacles. Yeah. Yes, the trash in the, in the stalls. And I remember hearing that flip open and being like, oh, that meant that you were mature and that you had your period. And I remember, <laughs> I remember distinctly, like, if someone else was in the bathroom, I would do it. I would open the little the little trash box and, like, to make it sound like I had my period, too, and I was using something. So I definitely wanted it to happen, but at that point had not. So I don't recall a book. I don't recall having a conversation with my mother, who was also a bleeder. Nothing. There's no recollection. And then school, nothing. I wish I had more, but I'm sure we will get to that later in the episode. You know, it's so interesting. Physical education, PE, is Mm -hmm. where teachers might be responsible for explaining how basketball court, a basketball court works. (laughs) Obviously, I did really well in PE. How does a basketball (laughs) court work? I need to know. Mm, What are those lines about? But then all... But then how how full do ba- footballs need to be? That's an issue, right? For sports I mean, fans in the house, how yeah. full are the footballs? But these yeah. are important things that a sports teacher might teach. However, that same teacher would then be responsible for reproductive health and yes. talking about blood. I mean, let alone mm-hmm. possibly talking to a student about their bleeding disorder, an extraneous part of their bleeding experience. Just the basics of talking about blood and talking right. about basketball. They don't really seem like they would be related, but one educator was responsible for both in most American schools. Yeah, that's insane to me. I mean, 
sure, I'm sure they have the education to do so in regards to the functionality of how things work, but I'm not sure that they are educated in how to gently have these conversations with young, young kids. So you're thinking like fifth grade, those kids are 10 and 11, maybe, right? 10 or 11. Right. Here's a question. What about those pastors, ministers, who else in different sects, um, rabbis, nuns, mm-hmm. who leaders, uh, practitioners, who is otherwise equipped to have this conversation? Or rather, why are those people in these spiritual leadership positions, therefore, it might be as strange to be equipped to talk about a religious practice and reproductive health as it is to talk about basketball and reproductive health. Exactly. Exactly. Right. I would say, coming from my own experience, that probably those in leadership positions within whatever religious organization have, at least, again, in my own personal experience, more empathy than my PE teacher did. Because there was no empathy okay. <laughs> coming from Mrs. Jarko. <laughs> yeah. Nice. This, this is Jarko calling yeah. her out. What calling name. her out. I don't even know where she is these days, but she had zero empathy. So I think maybe <clears throat> In, in the traditional sense of being a leader in the church, depending on how comfortable in any church, I'm using that as a, a broad umbrella term, that they have more empathy. And, and not all, there are some outliers, but they tend to be listeners and wanting to help. But are they equipped to talk about menstruation? Uh, probably not. Well, perhaps they're equipped with what they have as resources based in their religion, which might yeah. be directives to not talk about it. That's what Mm -hmm. we're going to unpack a little bit here. There are specific directives to not talk about, to separate the bleeding, menstruating person from other people throughout a series of religions. This is a recurring point, and this may be a recurring issue if someone who is menstruating is looking to one of those empathetic spiritual leaders to talk about menstruation. It might not even be allowed. Yes. Today we have some sound bites to share, both from patient and provider point of view. We want to make sure, as we're listening to this clip, that we're recentering the conversation on what does it mean to hold a belief about periods when one encounters an extreme condition or symptom. Mm-hmm. But to do that, we're just going to run through what Sarah and I can offer from our research and from what we've received, some submissions about what it's like to talk about menstruation while upholding a religious point of view. Uh The first soundbite I'd love to share, if I may, is from someone who experienced their first menstruation education as a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormon faith. When it comes to Latter-day Saints, which I call Mormons, Some Mormons don't like being called Mormons. They prefer to be called Latter-day Saints. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I called myself a Mormon growing up. I prefer to call them Mormons. So now that we got that out of the way, when I was a menstruating Mormon for all of three to four years, and I grew up, was born Mormon actually, got my first menstrual cycle at 12, I then questioned my faith and left the Mormon church around 15 or 16. So all of this only comes from my limited perspective of menstruation in Mormons, but 
This is what I remember from the early aughts. I don't remember menstruation ever really being discussed, at least not in any kind of doctrine or explicit lessons about menstruating. As young women and even children of female, as young women or girls in the Mormon faith, we were mostly taught about chastity and that it was our responsibility to dress modestly so that we and our male peers could remain chaste before marriage. And we also learned about childbirth. And we saw it constantly, not literally, but we were constantly surrounded by babies and children from other people in our community because women's role in the Mormon church in a spiritual sense is childbirth. They always explained that our gift from God was the gift of childbirth. And this always irritated me because my male peers got the priesthood power. When they turned 12, they got to start passing around the sacrament. And then by the time they were 16, they got to bless the sacrament. They could baptize people. They could heal the sick with blessings on their head. And as a young woman, when I turned 12, I got a period. I bled. I had cramps. I was more emotionally erratic. I had more mood swings. In my mind, these blessings and gifts did not seem equal (laughs) and unfair. We got physical pain of menstruation and all that comes with it. And then the, the pain of childbirth and the pain of pregnancy, because many pregnancies aren't comfortable or easy. While our male peers got the power to be in charge of the church, be bishops, be the prophet of the church maybe even one day. They got to bless our sacrament. They got to pass it around. They got to be in charge. They had the power to heal the sick. Who wouldn't want that over menstruating? We're going to thank Morgan for her participation and sharing with us her experience. Yes, thank you. And there's a huge issue if a belief system that denotes pain as punishment, if then an individual who ascribes to that faith has a bleeding disorder or extreme pain. There's an issue with that association. Huge, huge issue, right? There's a couple things. One, Morgan, thank you so much too. Like that it's a blessing. Like these, the men in in the Mormon religion get all these blessings and women get the physical pain in many, many ways, right? It's not just menstruation and wow. And reducing women to just being people that can have babies versus being healers or leaders and doing so much more because we know we can do so much more. Shepherds of life and death. Yeah, I think it's compelling to know that when it is brought up in religion, it's the shame, punishment, or pain. And I know you've spoken about this, Sarah, from the umbrella Mm -hmm. Christianity, not to make you a spokesperson, but umbrella Christianity Mostly it's Eve, right? Eve yes. Eve's the Eve's the talk of periods. What do they yeah. say about Eve? Right. Pretend so I don't know. she uh yeah. Okay. So Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Like there they are, all the fruits. Don't eat the apple. Eve eats the apple, and she is cursed with 
menstruation. So mm. far back, right, in our biblical texts, like the beginning, Genesis, right, the first book of the Bible says, hey, she's cursed. She's, a, you know, she made a bad choice. She ate the apple. Now she must bleed for seven days. And that she is now, oh, right, unclean. Thank you for pointing out the choice of it. Thank you for pointing out right. the choice. So interrelated to this reality of periods is the idea that women decided, that chose to encounter right. yeah, such a punishment. Right. So here we have in very significant texts. So that's the first time we're hearing about it. And it's a punishment versus mm-hmm. life-giving. I find that very interesting. Well, and anyone who's had an extreme symptom of menstruation might agree that it feels punishing to the body. It can hurt. It can cause Mm -hmm. pain. Right. But the idea of shame that's associated with an action that incurred this punishment is just not right. So what else? So what else do we have in the Bible? I can, Mm -hmm. if I may, speak from a brief, brief encounters with Jewish upbringing, but also with some research into Jewish tradition. Um, the seven days you mentioned, mm-hmm. that is Eve's punishment. The Rex. seven days is also referenced in Leviticus as the time in which a um, woman who is menstruating, any menstruating individual must be separate, or yeah. separated from Rex. the rest of her family, from her partner. She must be away. Yes. What? Let's talk about that. Don't yes. touch the blood. Yeah, so separation must be for seven days and cannot uncover mm-hmm. her nakedness. So that's straight from Leviticus. Mm-hmm. And if a man lie with a menstruating woman and reveal her nakedness, and she revealed the fountain of her blood, both of them will be cut off from their people. And you have to think about, okay, so here we are. Then that's Leviticus 2018. And it's thinking about biblical times, people lived in tribes. Like, they had to. It was the way of life. You you would not make it without your other people around you. And so saying, if you did this, if you laid with your partner when they were, you know, menstruating, then you are condemned from your tribe, essentially. Whoosh. What? That'll scare you from, that'll scare you away from menstruation. (laughs) That'll scare you right away. Yes. It's interesting that the, the, the nida time of mm-hmm. separation mm-hmm. in Jewish faith is always completed with a special bath, and I will check pronunciation. And the mikvah. Mi- sounds like mikvah. it happens. The mikvah. Thank you. Mikvah, the mikvah yeah. happens yeah. around ovulation because there's the seven days of menstruation that you're supposed to nida, and yep. then there's seven more days before the bath. Correct. So an interesting the luteal phase, the beginning of the luteal phase post menstruation is also separate. Yes. From the families? Yes, separate from, and that means physical separateness, right? In Orthodox communities, they are not sharing the same bed. They are not touching. They are not kissing. They are not even supposed to brush a hair off of someone's cheek, right? There is supposed to be complete separateness. And then there's special ways to check for that partner, the the menstruator, that it has to be completely clean. Like we're talking about special white cloth that has been made specifically Mm. for this act, that if anything comes out of the vaginal canal after you're checking to see if you were done menstruating, then you got to keep waiting and you got to keep checking. And do you know who does that? And to double check it? So the menstruator does, but it can also be double checked by a rabbi. Oh, great. Yeah. Right. A non- How about an OBGYN? (laughs) 
not, they're not doing that. They're not taking that in. They're not okay, like, hey, okay. can you check this out? Mm-hmm. Well, so let's say that there's someone in the Orthodox Jewish faith who is suffering from some fibroids and is having a 14-day bleeding period. Mm-hmm. That time of checking and waiting and separation is expanded. Mm-hmm. And that person's and that person's experience of life is going to be wildly different. Completely. Completely different. You know, in both, there's a great article I'm going to reference, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to quote it right now. We'll include it in the show notes. It says that in both Judaism and Hinduism, menstruation is classified as a time of impurity, according to systems that govern bodily fluids and interactions between individuals, right? So we did just speak of the nidda. In Hinduism, I'm mm-hmm. um, just going to briefly touch upon, there's a complexity of the class system. So mm-hmm. menstruating women are treated poorly by the book, depending on where the male counterpoint is within the caste system. Mm. So this impurity, this impurity mm-hmm. thing, this unclean thing, unclean. Sarah. Right. Why is that the theme throughout? <sighs> why is having a normal menstruation or an extreme menstruation unclean? My personal thoughts are, so even before biblical times, we can go back to Vedic mythology, where there is a story of Vishnu, the god Vishnu, sleeps with the goddess of Earth, and then she gives birth to monsters that could potentially destroy the planet, (laughs) right? Because they had relations when she was menstruating, and so she bore monsters, right? So Vedic mythology. So even before biblical times, like if we're looking at mythology, there's always been this sense. And I think what I, the word I would use is fear by those writing the text about menstruation. Mm. That there's not an understanding, a deep understanding about what this is and how to honor it instead of calling women unclean and dirty and needing to be separate from like not honoring the power of, you know, we can have power in one hand when we're menstruating and pain in the other. And because we generally do when we're menstruating, especially if you're having an extreme period where you're going to most likely have pain, but my goodness, do you have power? And, but that's never, that doesn't come up. Doesn't come up. No one's talking about that. No, it doesn't seem in, to come up in these different. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And yet we have to understand if we were in caveman times and looking down at our bodies and we had no Mm -hmm. razors or warm water, per se, at easy access. Sure. That some hygienic rules of dealing with the actual blood and and tissue of menstruation, that there could be reason to separate out a space in which to menstruate, much as humans separated out a space in which to do other bodily functions. Right. So even based in some hygienic practice, there was a choice for— religions to place on mm-hmm. a perhaps necessary hygienic practice a mm-hmm. shame punishment rhetoric yeah and the and the feminist in me right just wants to scream <laughs> i'm like that was a choice but, yes 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 as i've been involved in these conversations recently where we have to talk about the idea that we're all born feminists and we have mm. to learn that women are less than. Exactly. We're all born without racism. We have to learn that race would have a less than. Exactly. So, and, and we are all born atheists. We have to learn to have a ritualistic belief system. Correct. 
And we have to learn if we are not upholding a religious belief system, how to honor others who do use or have a strategy of religion. Religion can be part of life. And luckily we have doctors like Dr. Perkins, who we're going to hear from in a minute, who was on episode four, season one of Flow. And outside of the episode content that's available to you, listener, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, there was this soundbite, this bit of conversation from Dr. Perkins sharing what it was like as an OBGYN to be in the room with a religious patient. And the menstruating patient Dr. Perkins was treating was practicing in the Muslim faith and therefore needed her husband to be the spokesperson for her body. I'll let Dr. Perkins take it from here. It is such a complicated issue and a very present issue. And I think in our times now, there's so much more focus on it. And I'm happy there is because we want everyone to be aware of this so that we can improve the, the way that we function and the way that we are offering assistance and help and recommendations because it's very, very important. I think the first thing is that providers need to be aware of cultural differences and they need to learn how to change their format when they're dealing with a patient based on who they're dealing with and not in a way that is judgmental or like racist, but in understanding that, okay, we're different and you got to be open to learning about cultural differences and respecting that because you can make a recommendation to a patient. And if it goes, if it doesn't align with their cultural practices, it was not going to have, they're not going to do it. And therefore you might now look at this patient as one who is non-compliant, but it's more so a problem in that there's a lack of, or a, a understanding on both parts because if you are understanding you may be able to offer something else or come up with a plan that will work with that patient and their practices and I say that to say for instance I may have a patient who is not used to speaking up for herself she may be used to having her husband speak for her and so there are times when they will not see a provider on their own because their husband will speak for them. And so as a provider, I, I first may speak to the husband and I may say, it is very important that I speak with your wife directly. And are you okay with her communicating back? And you can still be here, you can still be present, but I want her to really speak. I wanna hear her voice. I wanna hear her words. I wanna see her expressions herself. And most of the times they will say, okay, doc, I'm okay with that because you're understanding their practices and what that means. And so that patient initially might not be as open and initially, but once they realize that we're in a safe place and that it's okay, sometimes they start pouring out conditions and feelings and things that they're having that they've never done in their many years of living. And we can now work together to work towards a, an improvement, a better life, a better health. That's just one example of understanding cultures and differences that I think will make a big difference in how we are functioning. Dr. Perkins. I love, wow. first off, I love her. <laughs> she sounds amazing. <laughs> big, big fan. Yeah. Well, what I pulled out of that was to honor and recognize the intersectionality of when 
you're in anyone else's presence, right? That it's not just, you're not just showing up as one person with one understanding and one experience, that there are so many different facets and feelings and factors to all of us. And religion, obviously today being our topic, is a part of that, to honor that. And just because someone does something differently than you, especially related to menstruation, and you're like, well, what the heck? That doesn't mean it's wrong, right? Like the first time working with an Orthodox couple and understanding the mikvah and the separation and being like, you don't, you don't do what for two weeks? Like you don't touch each other for two weeks? And then being able to understand the process. And they were so generous in teaching me as I was teaching them about relationship, they were teaching me about their faith and working together. That was such a beautiful, beautiful relationship. But being able to honor that for them because they had very different rules and obviously very different rules around menstruation that I was like, okay, all right, let's make that work. Honoring intersectionality always is going to be really important with religion and menstruation. And adjusting and flowing with Mm -hmm. what needs to be acknowledged. It sounds Mm -hmm. like your openness and your counseling Mm -hmm. to work with the parameters, of course, of whoever sits on your proverbial couch Mm -hmm. um, is essential. What's interesting is what does... What does a patient do if they are needing to adjust their spiritual beliefs in order to cope with an extreme condition? How can they deconstruct having their faith while still addressing a medical concern? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Is there anything that we could consider what's normal or not normal about shifting from? Yeah. Well, I would say you know, deconstruction is a very beautiful idea in regards to all aspects of your beliefs, not just religious, but when you are looking towards your behavior within relationship and how relationships should be. Speaking to that often with my clients is, wait, well, why do you, where does that belief come from? Where did that come from for you? Where did you learn? Like we do a long history of learning. Where did your beliefs come from? And I would say the same thing goes for extreme menstruation and your beliefs and your religion is just looking towards what is your belief system and were you taught that? Were you taught to believe this? Or are you really in that belief itself? So really kind of just sitting with yourself, okay, does this make sense to me? Do I believe these things? And does this apply? Because I have this extreme period. I know many of our listeners do that the rules might not work because their period menstruation is so extreme and their pain, or like you said, fibroids, like that's not controllable, right? We can't control how extreme our period is going to be. Hopefully with medication, we can help it, but we can't always anticipate what it's going to be. So I would say deconstruction is a beautiful thought of why do you believe what you believe and does that honor who you are as a being today, especially as an adult menstruator? So it sounds like when dealing with extreme menstruation in particular, it's totally normal to have to deconstruct a bit of religious understanding. Totally. Totally normal. Totally normal. You're totally, absolutely normal. Mm, Normal. Totally normal. In regards to having a religious faith, but then experiencing an extreme period, what might be helpful for a patient to know is totally normal? One is that your beliefs can have a place with your menstruation, and that's lovely. So I think that is totally normal. 
The other little tiny bit that I wanted to get to today, which I think is amazing, is that you might have more desire and arousal during your period. And that is totally normal. Oh my goodness, I'm so glad you brought up riding the Crimson Tide, since obviously today we've talked about religious practices that don't even speak about it and do Mm -hmm. dictate separation. Mm -hmm. But riding the Crimson Tide, sex during the period, can relieve your pain. Normal. Mm hmm. Totally normal. Might even help. Yep. Could help if you like, and if you want that. Mm-hmm. Laying down towels, mm-hmm. having, uh, there's some great feminine products that include aftercare wipes. Yep. Ha- being prepared for such an experience is something I wish I learned in sex ed. There was no Absolutely. chance they were going to teach that, but wouldn't that have been great? It would have been amazing. Could you imagine? They're like, buy a black towel. It'll be good. Right? <laughs> Rather than being like, oh, you're wait, 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 oh, oh my gosh, yeah, no, that would never would have happened at my high school. No, no, have, no, they would have burned down uh, had someone said that. But no. yeah, it would have. Been I really, really and I do want to acknowledge age-appropriate sex ed is obviously what we're talking about. It's not about teaching sex to kindergartners. It's when you do head, shoulders, knees, and toes, you should also do boobs and balls. Just like include all the parts. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Age-appropriate. Also emotionally appropriate, like where you are, where kids are in their development. So some eight-year-old may be ready for that conversation and a 10-year-old may need to wait another year. So also thinking about that too, like just see where your kid is and also Mm -hmm. totally normal if they get that information at eight or they get it at 11. Totally normal. Totally normal. This idea that like rape culture is not going to go anywhere until purity culture goes away. Uh, bingo, 100%. Yeah. yeah. Erica, Erica Sex Ed, I'll find out what her, I'll send you. There's a really great sex educator that comes from the purity. I can't remember, but she's amazing. Mm. And she does a okay. really good job of kind of talking about what you just said, like rape culture and impurity culture. I'll see if I can find it and I'll send, I'll send you something of hers. Really good. Thank you. Yeah, of course. I so appreciate our resource share every it's month so here fun. on Flow and general. Here's to more sex ed. Listeners can find you in all the links below to get your sexual mm. education. Hey, no shame in uh, being an adult who needs sex ed. Go to no. Sarah Watson. She's available. Let's take the shame out of it all, right? I've said this in previous episodes, working towards not hiding our tampons up our sleeves, right? Not hiding <laughs> the the pads or whatever you're using, your, your cup or whatever to take care of of your period, like, let's not have shame around that. I distinctly remember sticking tampons up my sleeve because I was embarrassed that I needed to go change my tampon because that's what I was taught to be ashamed of this Mm -hmm. when it's not. So I think sex ed can be that place to take the shame out of it and offer, I think people do things differently and that doesn't mean anything is wrong or bad bad or shameful. No, let's celebrate it. Celebrate it the way that a young Sarah Watson celebrated the sound of that little (laughs) trash can in the woman's room closing, (laughs) which meant you had to have a product with you. That was a proud sound. I have a menstrual product to throw away. Let's be just as proud as holding those menstrual products down the hallway. That's certainly what Flo would love to hear for the future. Mm -hmm. And in the future on Flo... This spring, we're going to talk about more about shame, because how could we avoid it? We're going to talk about communication, pop culture, and we're going to talk with some wonderful organizations. 
about fertility, advocacy, you know, the whole bloody shebang. We're going to do it all right here on Flow. Make sure you're subscribed. Check us out at Bloodstream Info on Instagram, where we have sound bites from every episode to give you a hint of what we're talking about on Flow. Bloody shebang is the jam. (laughs) Bloodstream Media is more than just a rare disease podcast network. With shows on chronic pain, menstrual health, and Dungeons and Dragons, yes, Dungeons and Dragons, Bloodstream Media's got a little something for everyone. Visit bloodstreammedia.com or find Bloodstream Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram to learn more. Flow is produced by Bloodstream Media. Shout out to Amy Board, creative director, and your hosts, Sarah Watson and Jessica Richmond. In 2022, Flow will have new episodes the second Thursday of every month. Hey, that's the day after I start menstruating. <laughs> <laughs>